0: Greetings, everyone. I wanted to tell you that I had a call from uh, Mammy, and Pappy is feeling very much under the weather. I think he has low blood sugar or something. It was too weak to really get out of bed today, and asked me to mention that to you here today in services. So please remember Mammy and Pappy. Uh, Pappy's the one who right now is quite ill. He had to leave services last week, as I recall. It was quite gray and uh, very, very weak, and uh, she had to take him on out and take him back home. So I guess he's been down ever since, and please remember him. For the last several days, because I missed Mr. Dart's sermon a few weeks ago about Can the Church Save You? I've been listening to his sermon on my little tape machine in my truck as I go back and forth to work. So I got to hear that as well. Some of you might not have been here then. I want to recap just very briefly what he said in connection with what I have to bring to you today. I began wondering as I was reading through the 13th chapter of Revelation, And thinking about Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, and the great false prophet who is going to sit in the place of God, showing or claiming that he is God, I began to wonder how is he going to get away with it? Now we know that it says he's going to have the power to call down fire from heaven and the power to work great miracles and this will mesmerize and hoodwink and deceive people and they will swallow it, they will believe it, they will say this has got to be of God, this can't be of man. I began pondering that very deeply as I was going over some of Mr. Dart's remarks about whether or not the church can save you. Then as I sat before my television set in this last week watching the news from Poland, I was even more impressed with what was happening over there in one of the large nations of Central or Eastern Europe, and it took me back to the time when I very first spoke before a group of 5,000 people at the Feast of Tabernacles. I remember so well the very first year in the metal building up at Big Sandy before we ever had to expand it, and this would have been in about 1958. And we had about 5,000 people there, and I don't think I could sing. I was so choked up with emotion, even standing down there on that concrete floor for the very first time in the church, of being in one building, in one room, with approximately 5,000 people who believed the same thing, who stood for the same thing, were members of the same church, were all going in the same direction, singing the same song, all there for the same purpose, to enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles. I was so excited and enthralled and choked up with the emotion of just being a part of what was happening, that it was an exhilarating and an exciting experience. Well, as the years went by, Uh, We grew to 8,000, then eventually to three different sites, and so finally, before it was all over, I had the opportunity on one occasion to speak before a big building filled with 15,000 people. Now let me tell you that as a speaker, to look out over a crowd of 15,000 people, you don't need a cup of coffee. You, You may not even need a whole lot of preparation, because... If you, you know you know what you're talking about, you know the Bible, you can open the Bible to some scripture somewhere that has some of the Word of God in there, I'll tell you the exhilaration and the excitement and the inspiration of looking out at an absolute sea of 15,000 faces lifted up looking at you in that podium waiting to hear what you're going to say is a very great, exciting turn-on, as they say in this world today. It is a kind of a high. Billy Graham, has spoken in some of the big outdoor football stadiums like the time President Nixon, who was then a president, came by his Knoxville campaign, and he's spoken up, uh, well, down in I believe the Superdome and out in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, to crowds 100,000 strong. But here I was watching the Pope in Poland. I began wondering what it would be like to be back there somewhere near the rear ranks and look over the undulating heads over rolling lawns in a huge, big, open-air area of some sort in the environs of one of these big cities like Krakow or wherever they were, to speak to one million people, a million five hundred thousand people, two million people. The government couldn't get that big of a crowd to the point of a gun they couldn't order that many Poles to take to the streets to hear Jaruzelski give a speech. But the Pope comes to Poland and in city after city after city the crowds numbered up around one million people strong. Now we don't get a lot of Polish television over here so you don't know what the byplay was. You don't know what the traffic jams were. You don't know what happened to the bus lines and the difficulty in transport. You don't know how many people died of a heart attack, do you? But there were some, I'll guarantee you, in a crowd that big, it will happen. You don't know how many ladies fainted, how many babies got sick, how many people were trampled to death, how many automobile or bus accidents or train wrecks there were. You know nothing of that. And you don't know and probably didn't think about the exhilaration, the incredible high... That would have been experienced by a dedicated, died in the wool, devout Catholic, to lay eyes on what they on whom they refer to as the Holy Father. To hear him in person, to see him in person, and to share that experience with approximately one million five hundred thousand other human beings, all of them screaming the same slogans, holding up the solidarity banner screaming, Viva Papa, except they maybe it's a different pronunciation, but really the word Papa or Pope merely means Father, and they were calling him Father. That's our Father up there. Now, in Mr. Dart's sermon, he read rather extensively from Halley's Handbook, among other sources, and showed you how it took approximately three to five centuries, and actually even longer because even at the Council of Whitby in 884, the Catholic Church still did not have 100% vertical hierarchical control over that one physical or political organization. History absolutely proves the claim of the popes of the constant succession from the so-called primacy of Peter is as false as any other lie that Satan the devil ever hatched. Christ proves it in the Bible, of course, because he insisted that his church begin with twelve equal apostles. But when you see two different popes, and you heard Mr. Dark tell how Constantine even named the city of Constantinople after himself, how he became the head of the church, how he made the decrees that they would quit Judaizing by keeping the Passover on the 14th, how the Sabbath was outlawed, how for centuries under force of arms the Roman Catholic Church put your brethren and mine many of whom we have every reason to believe, were true Christians, to death for observing a weekly Sabbath or the Passover on the correct date. They just weren't going to have it. Constantine, as a political and a military ruler, now declared himself over all of the clerics of the Romish Church. Well, at that time the Constantinople, or the it was called Universal, the word Catholic, you refer to the Epistle of James as one of the Catholic epistles. It merely means universal. And he explained then, gradually, how it was not until centuries later, and really even warfare, took care of the five great patriarchs, leaving only the two eventually at Constantinople and Rome, and they began excommunicating each other, and the record of some of those popes beginning with Innocent the First and Leo and some of the others, the obscenities, the plundering and the pillaging of poor poverty-stricken people, Their raw wielding of power, the lies, the chicanery, the skullduggery, the incredible sexual perversions and appetites, the robbery, the murder that was laid to their door, led even the Catholics themselves to completely expunge one of the popes called John, I think, the 23rd or whatever. And then the modern day John the 23rd took the same title to occupy that place in history so they could expunge it from their history books because the original model was so bad. Now, bearing all of that in mind, of how it took literally centuries for the apostate church to gradually blend the idea of one spiritual organism, for that is what the true church really is, into one political organization, and have that go down with the people, and have that subtly substituted for what Christ said concerning his true church which is his body. Let's ask ourselves, is it possible to worship the church instead of Christ? Is it possible to worship a physical titular head of the church? Is it possible to worship a general of an army? Is it possible to worship a husband or a wife? Is it possible to worship a local minister? In short, is it really possible to worship any other human being? Or is idolatry always confined to the worship of some esoteric idea of a deity who dwells in heaven, and to your particular clique or group he has revealed his innermost mysteries or secrets, for that is what esoteric means, and that you are privy to the exclusive knowledge, the mysteries of that one particular religion. We think of idolatry as being people in the Catholic Church who worship images of their St. Christopher's or Mary, or we think back during the days of Vishnu and Dagon and some of the ancient Babylonians and Greeks, but we don't think of modern-day worship as we saw it during World War II, directed toward Adolf Hitler in Europe and directed toward the so-called Son of Heaven Hirohito of Japan. If you read, and many of you have, and some of you took part in World War II, if you read very much World War II history, You will read, for example, at Saipan on the the final, last famous Banzai charge, and then how many of them would literally just throw themselves. They would get drunk and drink all of the sake in sight, and then the Japanese would come forward with anything from pitchforks to sticks, bayonets or unloaded rifles, whatever they had left, in one final suicidal bonsai charge right into the guns of the U.S. Marines. Or how on the island of Okinawa, in full sight, of U.S. Marines and Army personnel, thousands of civilians, and I've seen the actual documentary pictures of women walking to this huge cliff, tossing their babies over and diving over after them, committing suicide by the thousands to die for the great glories of the emperor because their leaders had told them that we were the barbarians Now we know that they were the barbarians and that the tortures that they used against their prisoners, the famous batan death marks and on and on, some of their beliefs, their concept of bushido, even the way they waged war of their belief in the one swift fell swoop. You know the high karate chop of the Japanese is more than just humor. It actually colored the entire belief of the elite corps of the militarists who believed in vanquishing their enemies with one swift blow of a razor-sharp sword. The way they did in their enemies was one chop, and that's where the word comes from, of a huge big sword of beheading their enemy. What they tried to do to us in Pearl Harbor was one blow to completely just obliterate the threat of the American fleet to interfere with their expansion Uh, southeastward and their enlargement of the Empire. Hitler was a false Christ. Hirohito was, and to a certain degree, still is. But let's look and pick up the story a little bit from the Bible and how it develops by going to the 8th chapter of the book of Acts and remember a man that the Apostles came across very quickly. He had quite a reputation, this man. He was in a sense like the Jim Jones of his day. Remember that Saul was consenting unto the death Of Stephen, We see that the last part in the first few verses of chapter 8, the last verse of chapter uh, 7, rather. And Peter was sent out by other apostles. That's an important scripture I think people ought to have marked in their Bible because some have not understood that scripture. It says very clearly in verse 14 of Acts, the 8th chapter, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem, apostles plural, at Jerusalem meaning those who were there, not up at Antioch or somewhere else, heard that Samaria, that's the northern province up to the north of Jerusalem around the Galilean area, had received the word of God, they sent, apostles plural, sent whom? Peter and John. Peter was being sent by other apostles, plural. This was a cooperative effort. It was not a vertical hierarchy under the control of one man it was unanimity in the Holy Spirit, and it was group leadership. As Mr. Dart brought out quite well in the tape, and I heard it, if you heard it here live, there was no connection, basically, between the church in Jerusalem and the one in Alexandria, or the one in Alexandria and the one in Ephesus, or the one in Ephesus and the one in Thessalonica, or the one over in Capernaum, or the one in Lystra, or Smyrna, or Derby, or the one in Babylon, to the one in Rome. They were not completely autonomous because there was cooperation between the various apostles, even if there were disagreements from time to time. Generally, Paul was over those in the uh, western world of Asia Minor and on westerly into the Greek Peloponnesus and Rome, and Peter was over those over in Babylon, and James, the apostle down at the headquarters church in Jerusalem, was over Jerusalem. Now it shows that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on some of these people in Samaria, verse 16, and they laid hands on them, verse 17, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Now here was a person who was accustomed to the way of his society which involved bribery. He wasn't trying to be dishonest. He was probably doing what was habitually done. If you wanted to learn the secret of a magician, if you wanted to gain prestige or power, if you wanted to buy an office or a badge or some station in society, you offered money. He saw a tremendous reaction. These people perhaps even began speaking with other languages, who knows, but he saw literally a change come over these people, and so he offered them money saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said unto him, Your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Notice verse 21 is interesting. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. The part was those who had been chosen of Christ directly, and the lot had fallen on Matthias. Since he was not one of the original twelve, Matthias replacing Judas by Lot, he could not have been an apostle. Peter knew that. Tending to make you believe again that only those who saw Jesus Christ face to face, there is a question as to whether Barnabas did, but there is strong inference that he might have, and Paul certainly did, were apostles during that day. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent thereof. Therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. Now, how did Peter perceive that? You don't see that in the text as you read through it. But Peter saw it. You see, there was jealousy. There was anger. There was even outrage. Now, why? He was in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon, instead of repenting, you might paraphrase what he said by saying what he really meant to say in his heart was, Look at this evil man, Peter. He is judging me. He is condemning me. He is criticizing me. Poor me. Feel sorry for me. Will you, Peter, please? He's trying to outrighteous Peter. He's trying to outposture Peter. For he thinks that's what Peter is doing. Pray to the Lord for me, brother that none of these things which you've spoken will come upon me." And so he is taking the emotional, kind of the Pentecostal route, you might say, saying, oh, brother, pray that God won't punish me as you've said, trying to make Peter appear in a terribly bad light. Why was he in the gall of bitterness? Why was he jealous? Go back to verse 9. There was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city had used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest." Now this man had quite a following. It wasn't only uh, members of a certain sect or a church. That wasn't it at all. He was the local magician. He was the soothsayer. He was the prognosticator or the astrologer. He was a man who could tell fortunes, who who could solve problems. They probably went to him when they had a rash or a sick baby. They went to him with business problems. They went to him with marital problems. They wanted him to counsel them. And it was from the least to the greatest. I mean, the richest men in that community went to him, and the most poverty-stricken little old ladies went traipsing up to him to ask him about the signs and portents, and what did he hear from up above? To whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, and this was their slogan, this man is that power of God which is called great that's the marginal reference this man is that great power of God as it says what a title they had put on Simon the magician now you know when Ali took the world championship if you recall I think it was in Florida many years ago I've forgotten it now but I remember I thought the man had gone absolutely crazy I thought he was on drugs Because he leapt and he danced around that ring and his eyes were wild and he was slavering and he was saying, I have beat the whole world. I am the champion of the world. And he went around and around and around in that ring. He thought he was going to fly for a while. And he was absolutely worshipping himself. He said, I am the champion of the world. I have whipped all of them in the world, you know little old lady with a 22 short could have done a whole lot of damage to him, but that wasn't what he was thinking about. He was thinking about beating this person in the ring, you know, with his gloves. Well, some human beings can get that kind of ego, and certainly Hitler had that kind of ego, and many people in his organization did, and certainly Hirohito in his own way had the same, as did Hideki Tojo, who was his wartime uh, minister of war. And to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. So Simon was a very famous person and perhaps he had quite a very nice living coming in. He had pretty good income. Everybody went to him and obviously there were certain fees, certain gifts involved that he could either have charged or which would have come to him automatically. Peter perceived that Simon was jealous and bitter because he was losing revenue, but really I think what hurt him even more than the money, if you understand human nature, was the popularity. It was the position and the status and the adulation, the adoring looks and the greetings of people that he was going to lose, and that was just killing his soul, and he couldn't stand it. So think about the Simons of the world. Remember now, if you will, the, the warning over in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul who said, Take heed therefore, verse 28, unto yourselves, he said this to the Ephesian elders, as he knelt down and prayed with them on the seashore, and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers to feed the church of God and use the word assembly every now and then, as Mr. Dart suggested we do to feed the assembly of God the group of individuals here and there who represent called out ones who are directly joined to Christ I am the vine and you are the branches he said and you are a spiritual organism as opposed to and is completely differentiated from a political or a physical organization. There's a distinct difference. Feed the church or the assembly of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Christ did not purchase an organization with his blood. He did not purchase a building with his blood. He did not purchase one man who then purchases you. He purchased countless thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals, and his one life is worth more than all of those lives put together. For I know this, said Paul, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. Why? The motive? to draw away disciples after them." Now The record is historically complete. It is quite accurate. Revelation 2 and 3, those that had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, they had the evil doctrine that said, let us do evil that good or that righteousness may prevail. The more we sin, the greater is God's mercy, so therefore let us sin with both hands greedily. There were those who tolerated Jezebel, the false prophetess and also a harlot who taught them to commit fornication and to sacrifice things that were to eat, rather, things that were sacrificed to idols. They had every conceivable sin that they tolerated because their leaders had become corrupt in those churches. Now, the total corruption that finally changed the entire character and the nature of the church took a long, long period of time. And remind ourselves again as we go along. First and Second Timothy, the pastoral epistles, about the Apostle Paul said, "The time is going to come when they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears." And how we must contend for the truth that was once delivered, said John, of Diotrephes in Third John 10, who forbade those who would, meaning those who wanted to be a part of the assembly and to listen and to hear the epistles of John read in the church. And as I pointed out time and time again, the only difference between those on the outside of Diotrephes' building, or his tent, or his church building, whatever it was he owned, and those who were on the inside, was what they thought of Diotrephes. What they believed concerning God, what they believed concerning the doctrines of God's Word, what they believed concerning the church, and perhaps even what they believed concerning John, was identical. But some of them bothered Diotrephes. So Diotrephes, quote, put them out, end quote. He may not have even done it himself. He may have had a, a lieutenant do it. He may have had a woman in the congregation. Oh, by the way, he kicked you out last week. Now, what did Diotrephes call the converted true Christians who were still in the hands of God and still inside the spiritual body of Christ, what did he call them? I don't know how to pronounce the word dissident in Greek, Well, I'll guarantee you that's what they were to him. He would have called them dissidents. Why, they are of Satan. They're not in, they're out, so therefore they can't be of us. Beloved, if they were with us, they would have stayed with us. It's obvious they're not of us because otherwise, you know, they would have come crawling back on their hands and knees and repented to me as a man, and we would have had one group here. So remembering all of these things, plus what I said briefly in rehearsing what happened down through the entire several centuries of apostasy in the church, let's ask ourselves the question once again. How can the false prophet get away with it? How have people in the past gotten away with it? and how is this individual going to get away with it in the future? I am beginning to believe more and more. I could very much be wrong, but as I turn to Second Thessalonians the second chapter to refresh our memory, I'm beginning to believe that this present pope may well prove to be the final false prophet. I thought it was very significant when a Polish pope was elected. I have continued to be amazed at the incredible magnetism, the charisma, the power of personality. He has broken every record in the history of the Catholic Church for travel, and for being politically astute and for being a man of world affairs and a man who carries great clout and continually is speaking to the great issues of the world, such as nuclear uh, disarmament and uh, the Middle Eastern struggles and world peace and on and on. And if any human individual is known as, quote, the Prince of Peace, end quote, a title that belongs to Christ, who do you think it is? I mean, many Protestants really do respect and love the Pope. You better believe it. He is becoming an incredibly popular man. I think a wave of sympathy went out toward him when he was shot. I think Protestants cried and prayed for him. I think they thought it was awful. Now, I felt, and I still do, that many of the Central European nations are going to come out from behind the Iron Curtain when NATO disintegrates, and are going to become a part of of the United States of Europe. And I felt that the election of a Polish Pope was going to be very, very important to releasing the hold of the Communist government on Poland. I thought for a long time that that was all a matter of the past now, when at first solidarity rose up to become a very great political power in the country. It looked like Jaruzelski and his ilk were losing control all of a sudden they clamped down martial law and out came the tanks and the water cannons and the police with their guns and so on, a lot of people were killed and hundreds of political prisoners were slapped in jail and Lech Valenza was put in jail and kept there for months. And it looked like, since they outlawed it, that all of Solidarity was completely over. And the bread lines start and people aren't being fed properly and people are unemployed and Poland is hurt economically. But they have clamped down, and they've got a curfew, and if you stick your nose out of the door after 9 or 10 o'clock at night, you get it shot off. It was just like living under Hitler there for a while, and still is to a large extent, in the nation of Poland. I didn't really know that the Pope would have the kind of success in this second visit to his homeland since being elected to the papacy that he did. It has been one of the greatest events in Europe since the end of World War II. I don't, my mind doesn't imagine what it would be like to be standing in a crowd of one million and one half screaming Polish people adulating, adoring, and worshipping the Pope. It must have been an incredible spectacle. I've been in the middle of some big crowds in Pasadena at the Rose Parade, a number of Rose Bowl games, that's the biggest I've ever seen in one place, sitting in the middle of an arena of 100,000 people. I'll never forget the way my hair stood on end the morning our captain called and said, This is the captain speaking. We have joined the 7th Fleet, and as you can from your duties, come topside and take a look. And that was in early 1951 in the winter of that year and finally I went up on the flight deck and I looked around and over there was the aircraft carrier Essex and on the other side was the Bonhomme Richard 888 feet by 150 feet weighing 27,000 tons carrying about hundred and twenty aircraft apiece and 3,000 men over to one quarter was the battleship New Jersey and back here was the battleship Iowa and about seven heavy cruisers, and about 21 light cruisers, and about 37 destroyers, and four or five submarines. I mean, you couldn't see anything except ships in all directions. And I was part of that. And this mighty armada is steaming offshore Korea, and it just represented the most incredible amount of power, of bombs and gunfire, and of huge naval rifles and aircraft and men that I'd ever seen in my life. And it literally stood my hair on end. It was an exciting moment. I'll never forget it. So think about that because I'll come back to that a little bit because that's the human element. Here in this second chapter of second Thessalonians reading through it uh, now we beseech you brethren verse one, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, meaning that Satan, the devil himself, and his agents, who are demons, will literally try spiritually to subvert your mind, nor by word, meaning the spoken word orally from some other teacher or preacher, nor by letter, which would have been a falsely signed, or in other words, a counterfeited letter, from us, as that the day of the Lord, or the day of Christ, is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any method, manner, or means, is what he say. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now during that day, there is no way you can escape the meaning of this verse. The individual who was a human who lived then, that Paul had in mind, if any of us in this room think that Paul had... Pope uh, Carol, you know, Woztyla in mind over here in Poland were all crazy. Absolutely not. Paul thought that he may have lived until the time of the second coming of Christ. And finally, as an elderly man in prison, uh, knowing that the time of his departure was nigh, he had to let go of that idea and tell his people and tell uh, Timothy that probably the time of his departure was nigh. He'd fought a good fight. He'd kept the word and he'd run his course and he was going to be. Uh, taken to the grave and so on, and he'd see them all later. But he was thinking of some individual, and where was that individual? Now be honest with the Word of God, at the time he was thinking about that individual. In the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church didn't exist. There wasn't any Catholic Church. Where was this individual? It's like saying there was going to be a peeling away or a revealing. It's like saying, I can take off my jacket and you can see my necktie a little better. There was going to be a falling away from what? You don't fall away from the false church. You fall away from the true church. And the falling away process... Just like taking a hose and spraying dirt off of a mound of dirt or something, where there's some object you want to clean off, gradually would emerge and become visible as you sprayed all the dirt away. He is saying, and there is a strange, not strange, but it's unusual in the sense that it's used very few times in the Greek, a Greek verb that we will cover a little later on, that is the word ginomai, which means become to be, Or it means, Arise in the midst, or become evident for what it is. So he says, There will be a falling away, and that man of sin, Be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, the man already existed, but he was wearing a cloak of some sort, and that cloak had not yet been taken away. He wasn't revealed, he wasn't evident yet for what he was. I don't know the name of the man. I really don't know who it was if Paul had any one individual in mind. I can't prove it. But he had one individual either as a personality or a character or even a literal person by name that he didn't mention in mind. And obviously the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul as he did in everything that he wrote that God did retrieve and make a part of the New Testament canon so that it was perfectly spoken. It is dual in meaning, and perhaps Paul didn't even know that. I'm pretty sure that he didn't, that he was speaking not only of his time and the time immediately ahead of him, but of our day today as well. Who is called the son of perdition or of destruction, or a person who is going to go into destruction or perdition, who opposes and exalts himself. Now, I've known an awful lot of people of ego. It begins really in the bullring playing marbles when you're four or five as a boy. You could go back and ponder what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the Lord. I have observed in my brief, little more than half century lifetime, that there is a vanity of youth and there is a vanity of teenage, there is a vanity of the elderly. I'm 67 years young, you know. There's a vanity of the intelligentsia. There's a vanity of the intellect. There's a vanity of the poor. Oh, I'm just God's poor. There's a vanity of the illiterate and those who cannot read and who are not educated. And there is, in short, vanity in every human being to some greater or lesser degree. That vanity will find a way of of expressing itself, whether a person is not gifted or isn't blessed with certain things that we may think should make them vain, there still will be vanity present. I get up in disgust time and again in the morning watching Good Morning America when the morning worship hour starts because it just bugs me. They will get a never-ending stream of Hollywood figures or sports figures, people you never even heard of. And they're supposed to be so great. And I'll say, well, who is that? Oh, I don't know. My wife will tell me. I guess it's some woman that plays on one of these soaps or something during the day. And they're, well, is it real tough for you? They'll ask him, how do do you do it? You know, how do you do it? What a dumb question. They're making millions of dollars, but we want to know how, how. It really must be a hardship on you, you know, having to be away from your kids the way you are. And your husband has his career, and you've got your career. Poor dears. How do you do it? Oh, well, we think you have to have a sense of humor. Oh, really? Wow. And millions of Americans sitting out here, oh, worship, worship, worship. Boy, look at that, you know, marvelous. Look at the way the skin is stretched over the face. Notice the line of the jaw. Ooh, she's got pretty teeth. And look at, wow. And and they are sitting there, in my opinion, in front of the television set, absolutely worshiping these human beings. To me, people that go to a motion picture marquee and roll up in the dirt on a wet sidewalk in a grubby sleeping bag and stay there for three days to see a stupid movie called uh, The Return of the Jedi, waiting three days to pay to see one motion picture. And they did it by the thousands in theaters all over the country. This is stupidity on a scale which is embarrassing. Somehow I do not understand. But worship, uh, that is a phenomenon that we really cannot consign only to the ancient Babylonians. It is alive and well in the United States of America today. Worship, adulation, meaning respect and love, a desire to copy, a desire to be like, a desire to emulate, uh, a desire to vicariously enjoy the wealth and the notoriety and the fame. I think other people just get a huge kick out of and rejoice seeing someone win an automobile on a game show. Oh goody, you know, because you see someone else win, so you enjoy it vicariously. That's where it's all at. Now notice what it says. He will oppose and exalt himself above everything that is called God. Everything that is holy Recently, Mr. Dart, I think, gave a sermon on the subject of holiness. It was just last week, I I think, fairly recently. And what is it to be holy? And that the church is is, is a group of collective saints, but that saints are not perfect, but they are holy. And that we are to be a holy people. Here is someone who actually would trample underfoot holiness. He would trample underfoot holiness godly qualities, godly ceremonies, exercises, observances, godly ways or methods of doing things, days, doctrines, policies, procedures, traditions, things which basically would be a part of your worship service, this individual would exalt himself above that. I'm going to take time out to tell you a story in just a moment. Let's finish the rest of this verse. So that he, as God, as if he were God, sits in the temple of God. Now, there is another duality here. I can prove to you by going back to Zechariah. We can look at Zerubbabel, who was a type of Christ. And Zerubbabel means born in Babel, who built the second temple and got a pretty good start on it. And of course, during the Herodian period when Jesus walked in Solomon's porch and in the court of the Gentiles and in the temple and sat in the treasury and watched the widow put in her might, that was the temple that Zerubbabel began, that he actually helped construct. The temple is a type of God's true church. Not the false church, but the true church. I have always taken this to mean, and it's, literal sense, that there would somehow be a new temple building built in Jerusalem. Maybe it would be a temporary tabernacle, maybe a cornerstone would be dedicated. I had wondered and speculated at whether or not the Ark of the Covenant would ever be discovered deep down underground somewhere, and they would rededicate some edifice in which to house it, and they would begin worship and maybe even sacrifices once again. And I still wonder, I still have in the back of my mind wonderment as to whether this will in fact trigger some very great events in biblical prophecy. But if it's dual, or if it means only specifically a building which is yet to be constructed in the environs of modern-day Jerusalem, or whether or not it meant the temple before its destruction in 71 A.D., or whether it meant in part the church as a collection or as an assembly of God's people, and that this individual would emerge out of their number, and I think it meant both, showing himself that he is God. I was ordained to the ministry in 1955 at age 25. I protested very strongly that I should not be ordained. It was the last thing in the world that I wanted. I was corrupted very, very quickly within months and years so that by 1957-58 I had a certain consciousness of my own power a certain consciousness of the authority of the ministry which had been pumped into me, which had been fed into me, just like intravenous feeding, and which I had thrived upon, which had been part and parcel of practically every class, every lecture, every assembly, every forum, every sermon, and every article I ever read. And I reviewed one just this morning, written by a gentleman whose name I will not mention in this hallowed area, called, Whose Opinion Counts? And the answer to that question was, Yours doesn't, but mine sure does. Now, it was counts in language that made it seem like God's does, but God has ordained the ministry, and the ministry is in authority, and your opinion, lay members, doesn't count. Now my story. A little lady who is now dead, bless her heart, really made me furious in about 1957 up here at the uh, Tabernacle building in Big Sandy. I want to tell you about it briefly. I don't remember all of the things she brought to me but we used to have during the Feast of Tabernacles a whole group of little booths. You entered into a door and there were like two or three different rooms and we had two ministers per room and we would announce in a schedule oh it seemed to be so important all ULA lay members had to come for counseling. So between services or after services, uh, we would have, you know, rooms A, B, C, D through about J, and there'd be two ministers or a minister and a college assistant, and each one of them just sitting there, and out in front would be one of the ladies with a long line of people sitting in the hallway in their chairs waiting to come in, and talk about their marriage or their business or problems or questions or what have you, and it was almost like a status symbol. I'm going to go get counseled, you know. People would wait in line, and they would come in to be counseled. Here came this little gray-haired lady, Mrs. Scudder. Her husband may still be alive, I don't know, but they live... Is he dead as well? Is she still living? Well, bless her heart, it was him that died. Okay, I'd forgotten. Thank you for that. She's still alive. Well, tell her I said this, and uh, and uh, she'll be glad to hear it. Uh, tell her... Uh, don't tell her I thought she was dead, for pity's sake. <laughs> But, uh, dear little Mrs. Scudder, her husband was a retired banker. They were a very charming and a very distinguished-looking couple. He was quite tall, gray-headed. She's a very sweet, nice little old lady. She sat there. I don't know for the life of me what the problem was, but she was telling me about some problem. And some aspect of it involved some third party to whom she had confided something. It seemed to me, as, quote, the minister, that it was quite essential to get to the bottom of all this to find out... What was it she had confided to this third party? And she began telling me, and then she said, But I I promised, my friend, that I would never tell that part of it. Oh. I said, Well, Mrs. Scudder, that doesn't apply. I don't know exactly what my words were, but I said, I'm a minister, you see. And I can release you from that promise because I have to know the whole story in order to give you a decision. So I told her, No, you can go ahead and tell me. That's all right, it'd be in total confidence and uh, you can tell me." Well, no, I, I promised I wouldn't tell. Well, that was like she'd thrown a cold a cup of water in my face. I couldn't believe anybody would answer me as a minister in that way. So I said, well, no, you don't understand, you know, and I thought, well, this poor dear, she can be made to understand. And I went around by the mulberry bush again, and well, I'm a minister, and you're a LA lay member, and, and I represent Christ, and no, you can go ahead and tell me, because you can tell your minister everything. <laughs> and I hope you do, you know. and. Uh, She said, well, no, no, I promised, and I gave my word, and and my word means a lot to me, Mr. Armstrong. Oh, I mean, about this time I began thinking, I said, well, now, have you heard about Ananias and Sapphira? And I pulled the Ananias and Sapphira route, probably out of the pulpit or in a Bible study or something, in Thessalonica, and he had warned them. He had talked about this in some detail. And now you know what withholds that it or he might be revealed when it is time, when when he is due to be revealed, for the mystery of iniquity, that is a secret lawlessness, an insidious corruption, does already work. It was like leaven was already in the dough, it was like some poison was already in the brew, And it was boiling and bubbling, and the leaven was spreading. And the word mystery, of course, means a dark secret, and iniquity means lawlessness. There were dark, evil secrets of evil doing and sin, which was steeping and seething and bubbling and boiling around within the ranks of the church somewhere. It was at work. Only he who now, and here's a very unfortunate old King James translation, he who prevents it, he who hinders it, He who is standing here to stop it and to prevent it will continue to prevent it. Letteth, will let, does not make sense at all, and modern translations help clear that up, as as does the diaglot. Until, now here's where the word ginomai comes in. The expression taken out of the way, if you look in the Greek Expositor's New Testament or the diaglot, is the Greek word ginomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, as we would phonetically spell it in our English language, and it means become to be. In other words, he's saying he who is holding this back, who is shoving it into the background and keeping it from happening quite yet, will continue to resist and not allow it to happen, until it arise in the midst, or until it become to be, until it emerge. And that squares with what we saw earlier, that he will be revealed, and from where? Within which ranks? Not some false person who comes from outside, but an individual who would emerge within. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Now that can't mean the one that Paul spoke of personally during his day because that individual died many centuries ago. So here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even though Paul thought that the Second Coming of Christ would take place during the lifetime of that individual, and he must have had an individual or a type of an individual in mind, the Holy Spirit inspired him to say something to us in this age and in this day that there will be an individual. It makes me wonder and I'm not going to get specific. I'm going to leave you to make up your own mind and to come to your own conclusions. But I'm going to say that the Church of God, and I do mean the entire collective church, no matter what some individuals for their own corrupt purposes have called us, or the attitude they have toward us, or the area of contempt and cynical disregard uh, or hatred uh, that they feel toward us, I'm speaking of the collective churches, the collective assembly, including such names as the Church of God, the Eternal, and the Reorganized, or whatever they are, the Church of God International, the Worldwide, and everybody else. There will come, in the near future, another great, massive trauma within the ranks of the Church of God. It will happen. I'll just briefly say this much. My father, in spite of what Gerald Waterhouse says, will not live forever as a man. He himself has been saying recently, and he said less than two weeks ago out of a pulpit, he was warning people that he might not be around until the second coming of Christ and that he might not live until that time. So he vacillates, and those around him who seize upon his status, and who's, you know, they, they are, in my opinion, a group of sycophants who ride on his coattails to exercise their own power. You will see something happen within that organization after my father is gone. And I think you ought to be very, very alert and aware of what the Word of God says about the church, about the true church, with your eyes wide open. And I think that perhaps this scripture may be closer to what is going to occur at some time in the future than we can even begin to realize today. If I had been preaching, which I did preach, of course, in the Feast of Tabernacles, 1977, and someone would have come up to me like an agabus with his hands bound together and said, you are going to do this and that, and this is going to happen to you, and you'll be down in Tyler, Texas less than a year from now, I would have called a man an idiot. I mean, would you, would anybody in this room in let's say November, October, November, December of 1977 have remotely imagined what 78, 9, 80, 81, 82, 83 could bring and would bring in the church of God? There's no way that you could have imagined that they they could have given you drugs, they, you could have hallucinated, you could have eaten pickles and ice cream before you went to bed. There's no way in your wildest nightmares you could have imagined what was going to happen to the church. How many people were going to drop away? Over 150 ministers put out. Suicides. People divorcing and remarrying even within the church. There was no way you could have imagined what was going to happen. I say now, right here today in Tyler, Texas, there's no way on this day in June 1983 that you can imagine what's going to happen to the church of God between now and 1990 if Christ is not on the earth before 1990. In your wildest dreams you cannot imagine what is going to take place. You can create the best scenario, you can create the worst scenario, and then you can come somewhere in between. And you can wonder, who's going to emerge? How many? What will they say of each other? What will they say about my Father? What will be the written and the spoken record then? Those who call him God's apostle today, what will they call him when he's gone? Think about it. I have to think about it. He's my dad. He gave me my life. He's my father and he sees my sisters all the time and he talks continually about his angina and about his health and his problems and he says he has problems from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet And his feet ache and his bones hurt and his heart palpitates and his lungs hurt and He has pains, and he is suffering, and he is in mental anguish, and he's involved in divorce and lawsuits, and he's being interrogated, and he's in in many ways is being subjected to a lot of misery. I can't abide, I can't imagine why some of his advisors are giving him the kind of advice they're giving him. I'll just pass on one little thing to you. I'll guarantee you what those in the legal profession who are opposed to him think, they think, that his own closest confidants are deliberately misguiding him, and that lawyers are getting rich beyond your wildest dreams, and I can quote to you, and I tell you on the authority of Christ what I say is accurate. More than six hundred thousand dollars have already been spent in legal fees in his divorce proceedings before it has even gone to trial. The taking of depositions is not even yet complete, and well over a half million dollars have been spent. That's all I'm going to tell you. I know a lot more than I'm telling you. I can't help but wonder, I'm dealing, you see, with reality. I'm standing here in a pulpit of the Church of God International. I'm standing here in June of 1983, knowing that tumultuous events are going to happen in the world in the next three, five years, knowing also that tumultuous events are going to take place within the Church. So why should I play games? Why should I preach nothing but neutral sermons? Why should I continue to preach what would be delightful to you, uh, what would be interesting, or piquant, or what would simply occupy our time without speaking to some of the great tumultuous events that are going to occur. It says, and then shall that wicked, capital letter W, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that are perishing, it's in the aorist or the progressive tense, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. You know what my father always said about the truth is, he said it's like a two-edged sword because the Bible says the same thing. And it cuts both ways. And he said the truth hurts. And if you love the truth, you love to be subjected to that which will hurt you, which will cut to the quick, which will correct you, and which will cut right down to the marrow of the bone so far as your character and your innermost thoughts and being is concerned. And if we do love the truth, then we love the truth no matter what it does to us. And we will embrace the truth and we'll accept the truth and we will with alacrity believe the truth no matter what it does in terms of shaming or embarrassing us. And for this cause, because they have drawn back from the truth, because the truth is no longer what they want, They've compromised their conscience. And for this cause, God will send them a working of error or a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. How many people in this world believe lies? I'll tell you. I'm not trying by any way. I'm just going to give you a disclaimer. I do not believe for an instant my father is another Jim Jones. He would never, never, never be that kind of a person. When I talk about Jim Jones, I'm not drawing the analogy of my dad. I may unintentionally be drawing the analogy of someone who may follow my father, but that is yet to occur in future history, and that will be the responsibility of that individual or individuals, whoever they might be. But Jim Jones was a person who who originally began with the most laudatory of goals. He was like a social worker. He wanted to clean up some of the ghettos. He wanted to help the minorities. He wanted to help the poor. He particularly had a message, and because of his charisma and his speaking ability, appealed to large numbers of blacks. He was in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. He met Rosalind Carter, as you know. He became, for a time, quite famous subtly and gradually with his preaching ability, with his mystique and his magnetism and the power of his personality, he began to create a following out of these individuals. Now I ask at the beginning of this, how is the great false prophet who is to rise going to get away with it? How can an individual make other people worship him? How do you get somebody to worship you, to give you his heart and his conscience and his thought processes, and to entrust you with everything that you call truth, with everything of any value, everything of conscience, so that that individual tells you to do something which normally your conscience would tell you is bad or wrong or evil or even a sin or a crime. You have given your conscience into the hands of that individual, so if he says do it, you say, well, it's not my problem. Uh, Let God work it out. It is God's responsibility, so I will do it. Like the lady who said to my sister that if a certain person gave her the orders to, quote, drink the Kool-Aid, end quote, after the Jim Jones edict, she would do it. Now, how? Because it did happen. I'm asking you... If you read about it, if you saw the Newsweek magazine with the bloated bodies on the cover, if you saw the television coverage, if you read the biography about Jim Jones, I'm asking what went through the minds of his followers? How did they come to the place where someone would look you in the eye As a living, breathing human being, a collection of sensory perceptions and appetites, a collection of nerve endings who hurts just like we do, who has hopes and dreams and aspirations, who is able to love or to hate or to feel fear or to feel elation, who has a desire to live on out into the future and see his grandchildren, and yet would look you in the eye and tell you, if Jim Jones tells me to commit suicide, I will do it. There were over 900 of them, weren't there? And he gave the edict, and here's the big bubbling vat, and he's sitting up presiding in front of it, come on up and take your turn. And the ones who were standing behind were able to see the ones who had just swallowed it fall to the ground and writhe in agony, and blood begin to come out of their nostrils as they died. And yet step over their writhing corpse and take their turn. Ponder that for a minute. Not too long, probably bother your dreams tonight, but it happened, didn't it? Only a very short time ago. Now as I contemplate, one and one-half million human beings holding up their beads and baubles and their badges and hoping that the gesture somehow of the so-called Holy Father allows those beads to be, quote, blessed by the Pope so they can go to their home and create a little niche in the corner and they can put that thing there and say this was blessed by the Pope and they can bow before. That's what they do, you know. They even have a little pin or a medal or a badge or a little thing they wear in their hair and they hold it up and the Pope makes, waves his hand makes a funny sign in the air then they go home and they build a little niche in the corner and this was blessed personally by the Pope and they worship before that. What was going on in their minds and their hearts? Think back, and what what was a great emotional moment for you? I had some of the great moments of my life, seeing my boys born. Uh, the instant that I saw the little head and the whole thing, you know, the baby boy coming out. Oh, honey, it's another boy. You know, I mean, you talk about exhilaration. You just, you, you break down, you bawl like a little boy, and it's just unbelievable. Great moment. First day I ever went to see you on the Antietam. The first military parade in which I ever took part. Dress parade with whites, thousands of us before the Admiral. Uh, graduation from high school. Uh, I think of great emotional moments, speaking before 15,000 people uh, when I got my type rate on the fanjet Falcon. Uh, you know, the first trip across the Atlantic. Things of this nature. Great moments in life. Think for a moment of some of the great, tumultuous, exciting, emotional experiences of your life. Have any of them had to do with the church? Have they been moments like at the last song when we meet again at the Feast of Tabernacles when you could hardly sing for the tears running down and your nose beginning to run, thousands of people singing together till we meet at Jesus' feet? Probably, yeah. Those can be great, great, moving moments. Would you ever on a moment of such emotion be so caught up, could there ever be a speech that was delivered so beautifully and so marvelously and was such a perfect speech that at the end of the speech, it would be announced we're all going to leave and go in one mass together and we're going to march on City Hall. Yeah, I I, I think that could be done. I've seen people together at a time like some of the great sermons I remember hearing up in Squaw Valley by Mr. Portune, Uh, some of the great sermons I've heard my father give and others, some that I hope that I've given, where I believe people literally would have done what the man in the pulpit would have told them to do. I'm not suggesting suicide. I'm suggesting something great, something you know, uh, dynamic, something challenging, something perhaps very rewarding. Put that in your mind and realize that there is something about a collective group of individuals, something about a crowd, something about a mass of human beings, which exhilarates and which lifts your spirits and which turns you on. Now, in the book that I've read, which is a biography of Adolf Hitler, he stated that the spirits of the people are weakest at night. And his greatest meetings were always at night. The torchlights, there was something exciting about that. Tens or hundreds of thousands of torches with their flickering flames. Thousands of banners. You know, we have a slogan here. We take our corporate seal, and a man uh, thought it'd be a good idea, he's a wood carver, So he carved it, he put it all together, and wound the metal around the little half to the sword and so on, made a beautiful piece. But I understand that, you see, because I've become a student of human nature over the years, and I understand about uniforms and hats and badges and symbols and slogans and great statements about we are the only ones. I understand about the us-them and the we-they and our group and yea, panthers, or yea, lions, or yea, bears. We're this animal or the other animal, you know. And uh, fight on for this and that symbol. We must not let the flag drop on the battlefield. And so men die picking it up. And when the second flag was put up atop Mount Suribachi, about uh, 640 some odd feet high on one end of Iwo Jima, where over 5,400 U.S. Marines died, and over 16,000 were injured. One of the greatest pictures to come out of the war, of the American flag streaming in a breeze. There's a monument in Washington, D.C., with each of those soldiers, and I think there were Marines, in the position of just putting that flagstaff in place. MacArthur wading ashore out of the LST, saying, I have returned to the Philippines. Remember it all. How can he get away with it? How is he going to do it, this individual? For this cause, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. What cause? Because they received not the love of the truth. Now, the love of the truth is an individual love. The truth does not reside in a corporation. The truth resides in the word of God. If you were to draw a diagram, and I'd like you to do so, just sketch for a minute, and you have these following constituents. You have a little piece of paper, otherwise do it in your mind. You've got God the Father, and you have Christ the Son. And he said, my Father is greater than I, so you might want to put God the Father, Christ the Son. Now, I used to laugh at that because I said you can't put God in a box. I've always kind of laughed at corporate images that are sketched, you know, in diagrams because you can't put God or Christ in a box. But for the sake of of just drawing the, the following constituent parts, God and Christ, and then there is, the human leader of the church, and there is the Bible and you. Now I want you to draw lines. And how would you arrange that? Is it God and Christ, and then the human leader, and out to the side the Bible, and then down below the Bible you, or are you out to the side of the Bible, or is it God and then Christ, and then the Bible and then the human leader, so he was interpret and then and then you beneath that. Or is it God, and then Christ, and then the Bible, and out to either side, you and and the human leader? Which way would you arrange your chart? Well, I would arrange mine in the latter fashion. God and Christ, and then the Word of God, and as absolute equals, able to look into that Word, you and the human leader. Otherwise, why did God write the Bible in the first place? Now, did God not send teachers? of course he did. But he also sent a warning. If they, these teachers, speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. To the law and the testimony, to the law and the prophets, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Check up, find out. My father said that for over... 30 years, and I've said it for 28 years, and will continue to say it. Don't believe me, but believe the Bible. If you receive the love of the truth, you are receiving an individual love, and it is also a part of the very attributes of the Holy Spirit, because the fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, and peace. Now, it's not only love, then, of fellow man, Love toward God and love toward fellow man. It's also love of the truth, love of the Bible, love of the Word of God even above your love toward another human being who would mislead you about the Bible, leave out a part and emphasize another part, or tell you something that isn't in the Bible in the first place, make an edict, or tell you you must do something which isn't in the Scripture. Didn't Peter say we must obey God rather than men? And didn't human individuals lose their lives based upon that concept? Notice going on in verse 12, that they all might be condemned, as it should read, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, then it was fun for a time. They were the good old days. They were heady days indeed. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through what? And again, reiterating what Mr. Dart said, through the church, through one body. No, through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word, that was word of mouth, orally, or by our epistle. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us, and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good work, or word rather, and work. Jesus Christ of Nazareth says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you have a complete and a total love of the truth, you will never accept a substitute or a false doctrine. Notice Revelation the 13th chapter right quickly. I won't read all of the description of the beast, but it says the head that was wounded was healed and the world wondered after the beast in chapter 13 and verse 3. And they worshipped the dragon that is devil worship but of course it is in symbol and it's very subtly substituted so they're not really aware that they're worshiping Satan the devil which gave power unto the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him if you saw the pictures well many of you seen some of the documentaries of the uh, one which showed the carrier air groups turn, returning aboard the Kaga and the Soryu and the Hiryu and the Akagi. And there were two others, let's see, they were, I've forgotten that. Oh, this is uh, the uh, Shokaku and the Zuokaku after the, uh, the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor. And these cheering, absolutely crying. Excited Japanese, and when those ships finally put back into home port, the welcome they got was absolutely out of this world. Very few Americans have ever been swept up in the same emotions that Germans and Japanese basically feel. We are a different people. We are not, in spite of the fact Russian leaders choose to disbelieve us, a war-making people. We do not glorify war we hate it. We abhor it. Douglas MacArthur did. He said, and I believe what he said in his final speech before West Point, that he hated war as perhaps no man has ever hated it. In spite of the movies that sensationalized George Patton standing on the smoking battlefield saying, oh, how I love it, and maybe he was a perverted man who did, I don't know. Most American generals and admirals and the rest of them hate war. Most men who fought in war hate war they hate the necessity for it, they hate the incredible insane waste of it, the death, the disease, the injuries and wounds, the destruction not only of human life but to whole nations so far as the breaking of national economies and the defoliation of whole countries as we have done in Vietnam and they hate it. But other nations do not. They glorify war and they actually believe that the test of the metal of a nation is found in its ability to wage war. It is a deep-seated belief in the heart of many a Gentile nation and a race of people on this earth today. It was that way in militaristic Japan under a military government. The parades in Tokyo, the huge big ships, and oh, weren't they absolutely magnificent. If you could have seen some of them, it would have just been the most awesome thing. Let me just give you a comparison right quickly. Some of you couldn't name them probably, like the Yamato, and the Musashi, and the Kinshara, and the Congo, and some of these that were the huge battleships. There were at least four of them that had 18.2 inch cannon, where ours were 16 inch. And get this, my aircraft carrier weighed 27,000 tons. It was 888 feet long and 150 feet wide and carried 120 aircraft and 3,000 men. The giant Yamato. The biggest battleship with its sister ship ever built in the history of the world lies at the bottom of the ocean today, sent there by U.S. bombs in the second battle of the Philippine Sea. That battleship, I told you my carrier, weighed 27,000 tons. That battleship weighed 72,000 tons. It was a gargantuan ship. It was a monster ship. I've read about all the armament it had, I've forgotten now what it was. It was something like 15 or more 18-inch cannon and just dozens of 5-inch 38s and perhaps hundreds of 3-inch and on down. It was an incredible ship. You cannot, unless you've been in the military service and you've seen a huge armada of ships with their sailors standing in neat whites as they stand out to sea, unless you stood in a military parade and seen 1,000 bombers passing overhead shaking the earth with their noise, unless you have seen the mighty armadas and the huge parades of military men all in uniform with glistening bayonets marching to martial music, you cannot know what the German public was treated to for years prior to and during the first part of World War II. You've never seen goose steps except in movies. But the Germans saw goose steps which gave them goosebumps. They would see these incredible parades of tens of thousands of these Germans wearing coal scuttle type uniforms kicking their feet clear up this high in the air and the thunder, the tramp of tens of thousands of boots and it would just pick them up. I mean they were on such a high it was like a drug kick. They were just Excited beyond belief. Here is a system which because of its military power and because of its satanic policies of a desire for conquest of the whole of the world is absolutely adored and is worshipped by its followers. The Bible says that they are going to worship the beast and they're going to worship what? The image of the beast. A few weeks ago, Mr. Dart showed how, uh, through history, as we see in the latter half of the 13th chapter of Revelation, that the Roman Catholic Church was constructed exactly according to the old Roman collegia, which included the concept of a college of cardinals and one papacy or pope at the head of that college of cardinals, and then, like beneath them, a senate except they went into the great diocese and the lesser dioceses and on down to the local parish houses and so on. They began to evolve from the system of a bishop to one that was over a big city, which was called a metropolitan. And finally, over several big cities, was a patriarch, until there were five patriarchs, and they finally disintegrated down through warfare, which took care of, of uh, the eastern cities, especially Alexandria. And uh, let me see. There was Antioch in Pisidia. There's one other I've forgotten, but eventually it remained only between Rome and Constantinople, and there were two great patriarchs, and then finally the two popes were fighting against themselves, and finally it resulted in only one, but it was centuries in coming. Notice it says over in verse 11, I beheld another beast or great creature coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So this is Christ-like in appearance, but he spoke as a dragon. It speaks with the tongue of Satan the devil. And He exercises all the power of the first beast before Him, that means the Romish system or military power, and, them, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast. Here are people who are supposed to be under the training or the teaching or the inspiration of a lamb-like spokesman who literally is speaking as a dragon but masquerades as Christ, maybe even saying He is God on this earth, and teaches them to worship. A military power. And he doeth great wonders, and that hasn't happened yet, so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That is going to happen in our lifetime, maybe in that period of time I'm talking about between now and 1990. Maybe instead of just seeing in your television sets a million and a half people, and seeing the tumultuous screams and cries of those people as they greet their so-called Papa, you will see him gesture and the television cameramen will be screaming, and everybody will be falling to their knees and crying and praying, and you'll actually see a big fireball come down and hover over his head. I don't know. But the Bible says that individual is going to have power to do that. And deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound of the sword and did leave live, and he had power to give life under the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, and who are they, should be killed, and causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Is that symbolism, or is it literal, in the form of a national identity card or a national Tattoo. There's quite an article that came from West Germany recently, I did not know, that they've already issued a national identity card in that nation. But there is quite a movement toward that in the United States. Police agencies, and it's only the idea of, you know, our various privileges under certain amendments to the Constitution and so on, and our right to privacy, that many groups are resisting it. But if you had one national identity card, you see, and if it could be tattooed on your body then all this business of missing persons or discovering a corpse, not knowing who it is, and on and on and on, the police agencies and the federal agencies would find their work much, much easier. You could be kept track of by one computer. And every every credit application, every time you make a purchase, every time you cash a check, every time you take a driver's test, every time you do anything, instead of your SS or Social Security number, and I have mine memorized, don't you? Instead of putting that down and having it on your driver's license like I do, you would have your national identity number. Will that be literally tattooed on our right hand someday? Maybe an invisible ink, so you've got to put it under a, a spectre or some sort of a light to, to bring it out. I don't know, and I'm not trying to just pique your interest to fall in line with some of those favorite conspiracy theories of people. This might be symbolic. It certainly does have to do with the national and international economy, and I pointed out before about the AQ that is becoming to be the currency of the European common market, and also the mention of the word franc in French, which means mark, and the fact that the German mark means mark, and of course that that's the meaning of those two currencies. And the mark of the beast might be dual, and we understand that, that it is an economic system, because it says very clearly in verse 17, no man might buy or sell, save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. It is the number of a man. And that's the whole point. It is worship of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. It has happened in the past, hasn't it? We could turn to the book of Acts and read, and I've forgotten exactly where it is. I think it is, uh, I'd have to go look it up. But where Herod was giving a great speech on one day, and the people were so overcome. It was such an incredible speech, and they were so overcome by all the trappings of the thousands of military men, and they said, "...it is the voice of God and not of a man." And it so moved Herod that he just stood there and exulted in all the adulation of the people, and God struck him, and worms just began eating him alive and infested his whole inner parts, and he died an agonizing death, and it's in the Bible that that happened. So it happened during the days of Paul. The apostasy did take place, and people began to put themselves in the very place of God until eventually they called themselves the vicars of Christ and the very spokesmen of God on this earth in the false apostate church. But it was dual. And your own eyes and your own Bible tell you that Paul said it would be revealed and it would arise in the midst of the true church. Was that later on Simon Magus, who was masquerading as an apostle? Who were those individuals? in Ephesus to whom Jesus said you have tried them that say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars who were they? we don't know who were some of the leaders of the church in Thyatira or Smyrna or Pergamus, where they had such hideous problems it was dual it happened in history the church became apostate and false men came in even as Paul said both from without and within but also it was from within the true church What will happen in the next three, five, and seven years by about 1990? I do not really believe my father is going to live to be 100. He may. He could. My grandmother lived to be 96. Our family is quite long-lived. But as I read these scriptures, as I think about that period of time, as I think about some of the individuals who I know very well, as I think of some of the incredible chicanery, the lying, the utter corruption of character, the incredible salaries and the amounts of money being used, I wonder what's going to happen when my father is no longer there to hold it all together by the very force and the power of his own personality and the influence of his name. What will they say of him when he's gone? Who will emerge? Who will be the leader? I wonder if these scriptures have any significance at all to great events that are going to rock even the Church of God. If I thought for one minute that everything that happens in this world happens in some completely unrelated, far distant, manner or in some arena in which the church has no part, then what am I doing here every day? What am I doing in there in a radio studio? Why am I writing all the time and preaching all the time? Why have I made more than 1,006 or 8 or 10 radio programs since having to start over again on my own? Why am I ready to start another season of television? Why are we doing what we're doing? Is there a work still to be done? Is the gospel still to be preached? Is a witness still to be given to our people and to other nations around the world and even the leaders of the Jewish race? Well I believe it is and I believe that witness will have to go out. But I do wonder very very seriously about great events which are yet going to rock the Church of God to its very foundations. And I think perhaps we ought to contemplate that, to pray about it, to be aware of what might happen, and to be forewarned in advance.